Welcome to Beyond the Seminar, where we sit down to have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting the UC Davis Biomedical Engineering Department Seminar Series. I'm Randy Carney, an Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering here at UC Davis, and I'm joined today by Dr. Beth Pruitt, a Professor of Biological Engineering, Mechanical Engineering, Biomolecular Science and Engineering, and Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at UC Santa Barbara. Welcome to the program. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. So your lab develops microtechnologies for small-scale electromechanical and mechanobiology measurements. So could you explain to us what mechanobiology is and why you're interested in that? Uh, we like to think of it as pushing and pulling on life and trying to understand what do cells and tissues do when they're under load. So from a mechanical engineering perspective, people often think about biomechanics in terms of how do things move or what are the material properties and mechanical properties. But mechanobiology to me has also got this element of the mechano signaling. So how is it that we are actually changing decisions and responses that the cell makes when it's under load? So some simple examples that most people are familiar with, um, you know, when astronauts go to space, they lose bone mass. And in large part, that's because their bones are unloaded and the cells make the decision like, hey, we don't need to keep making as much bone. Let's take a break, guys. And in fact, let's break down some of this bone that's around us. This is awfully confining. Um, so your cells are constantly making these decisions about what their mechanical environment is. And some of those are in the context of um, disease progression or aging. But we're really interested in, you know, like I said, pushing and pulling on life and seeing what, you know, what life thinks about it. But we do that at the cell level, so the micro scale. Yeah, so you, you've said in the past that, you know, our mechanical senses like touch, hearing, you know, literally are, allow us to navigate our surroundings, and yet we don't really understand them uh, as much as the other uh, type of senses, which I find really interesting. But in particular, you work on the heart, uh, a lot of your research. Um, so how does the mechanobiology come into, you know, heart disease? Right. The heart, if you think about it, is one of your more active um, organs in your body. So, you know, all of our muscles are mechanical actuators. Um, but you know, your skeletal muscle can kind of hang out and take a break depending what, what position, right? You're changing position constantly, but your, your heart doesn't ever really get that opportunity. So very different physiology than skeletal muscle and how it, uh, maintains itself. Um, and in fact, it has very low turnover of, of the motor unit, the cardiomyocyte cells that do the work in the heart. So when you lose cardiomyocytes or something happens to them, uh, that's a, a pretty precious resource that is, is lost to you. And so we're really trying to understand in the context of either injury or disease, um, how does the heart remodel to deal with increased load, whether that's from um, things like stiffening from atherosclerotic plaques or other types of diseases or a genetic mutation that changes how the cells handle or generate load. Um, Again, you know, it's a very, it's got a very mechanical phenotype and a very mechanical function. So for us, it's something that's very accessible as a as a readout, um, and critical, obviously, to to basic functions of of higher level organisms, including mammals, who who all have hearts. Um, so we're we're particularly interested in these disease mutations and how those how those lead to um, changes in the mechanical function of the heart and mechanical signaling. Some of your recent work focused on this, I would say, all too common genetic heart disease, um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM, um, which is the leading cause of, of sudden cardiac death. And so this is, you get this heart, as I understand it, thickening of the heart muscle and ultimately heart failure. Um, and yeah, some of, some of your work were sort of explaining that 
you know, there's more than a thousand genetic mutations which are leading to these this dysregulation, a lot of them having to deal with um, these key proteins in heart muscle that drive contraction. So how did you first learn about the link between these genetic point mutations and these kind of gross motor or, you know, macro scale mechanics of, of these kind of tissues? Yeah, we started making measurements again, you know, coming from the mechanical engineering side and making a lot of these tools for making measurements and asking questions about how these things work. We started making measurements on heart muscle cells, real, I'll call real heart muscle cells from animal models with um, our cardiology collaborator, Dan Bernstein. And over my career, the advent of the stem cell derived procedures for making in what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, being able to give the ability to um, redifferentiate a cell type into something else. And so to make human heart cells, which again, don't regenerate, we don't have an easy source of them, they're hard to keep in a dish. So if you can make them from stem cells and then turn them into a, a human cell model in a dish, that would give you a lot of advantages for drug testing, for modeling diseases, for understanding development. Um, so we we spent you know, the better part of a decade, I would say, working with collaborators who kind of know what primary cardiomyocytes look like, trying to build a better cardiomyocyte model in a human genetic background. And in parallel with those, um, those efforts, there's just been a lot of advances in gene editing that allow you to insert these point mutations. So it was actually, ironically, at a meeting in Singapore, um, talking about our, our efforts to make these types of measurements and in these cardiomyocytes and, uh, long time now collaborator, but first time I actually met in person to talk about this was giving a talk as well from Stanford. So here I am in Singapore having a conversation with my Stanford colleague who's talking about studying point mutations in individual motor proteins. And we're like, we have to get together and collaborate. And it, lots of people have been saying that we should, but um, we just hadn't made the time to meet. And so we we uh, we made a, a more concerted effort after that, after that conference, including, you know, he was already collaborating with my longtime collaborator, Dan. So we, you know, we just started trying to engineer these mutations into cell lines and the, the tools for genetic editing and for verifying what you've got for making these cells, for making cardiomyocytes from stem cells have just gotten better and better in the last 10 years. And so I feel like we're really, you know, all the, all the things are kind of like the right time to ask some of these questions. And now we are, we are able to make some of these cell models, do these, these measurements um, together with labs like Jim's that are making molecular measurements, uh, other collaborators at University of Washington, Mike Rainier, David Mack, are making measurements at the subcellular level, at the multicellular level. And so we're really trying to look at this whole continuum. Um, but it's, I would say it's really in the last few years that all these things have kind of converged to allow us to ask this question in multiple labs, multiple scales, all around the same effect of, you know, what is the effect of this point mutation from the protein level up to the tissue level? Uh, but, you know, honestly, I mean, people have been trying to unravel this for decades and you know, starting with just even identifying that these patients that had the disease to get them to be genotyped, to get them to, and their families to donate um, their cells to make stem cells so that scientists could begin to start to understand this. And, and it really started with very generous families who are willing to have, you know, many family members um, genotyped to, to learn why did mom get this disease and, you know, two of her kids did and four of her kids didn't, or, you know, her sisters and brothers didn't. And so uh, a lot of efforts around and a lot of generosity from um, hospitals and patients, right, trying to understand this. And it, I think that our ability to study this in a dish will hopefully accelerate our learning so that it's not kind of 
waiting decades for some people to get heart disease and then try to understand why they got it, if we can accelerate that understanding, uh, maybe we can prevent the disease from occurring for some of those people. So you were recently awarded this this huge NIH RM1 grant. Uh, and With seven other labs. Yeah. So this is... It's uh, not so huge when you divide about. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, huge in the sense that it's your it's it's not your typical grant that's you know, awarded no, to it's your a lab. No, it's a big consortium grant. Yeah. yeah so multi-PI. Big problems with a big scope. Um, so how does how does that work? What, what's that like to work with that big collaborative team of multiple labs under kind of one umbrella? We've, uh, for the most part, been working together for a long time. So this was not the first certainly not the first grant we wrote together. It's the largest grant we wrote together, but we've certainly written other large grants together. Um, and this particular case, we really intentionally tried to steer it less about um, understanding a particular disease and understanding how does the defect in a myosin motor protein, whether it's in, just in striated muscle, so skeletal muscle or in cardiac muscle, how does that traffic through all the way to the tissue level? So it's not even, the grant itself is not really about understanding HCM. Um, I know I talked about a recent paper, which was an HCM mutation, but not all the mutations we're studying are HCM mutations. A lot of them are, but uh, many of them are um, skeletal muscle mutations. And we're, they all have a clinical significance to the mutations, but some of them have a higher penetrance than others or higher... Um, worse consequences, I guess, uh, for the, from the disease phenotype. And so we're really trying to understand like why, how does this one motor protein, how does the mutation in this one motor protein traffic through to so many different instances of, of, uh, dysfunction at the cell and tissue level? I mean, really what we know mostly is at the organ level. So we're really trying to understand like, do you see it at the cell? Can you, could you predict it from cell and subcellular levels? And it's looking like, yes, yes, you can. So I think this idea that so many drugs fall out of pipeline um, because of cardiotoxicity as, as one of the side effects. And cardiotoxicity, even for a subset of patients who have complicated effects, like if you could get to the point where you could test a medicine before you give it to someone, whether that's a chemotherapeutic to treat their cancer or something they've got to take lifelong, and determine if this is going to have bad effects on their heart, that would be pretty cool, right? And I think we have a ways to go for that because, you know, you, you really need, like a clinical trial, you really need to test thousands of people and you need to test, therefore, thousands of cell lines made from different people with different genotypes. Our grant is intentionally designed around um, what are called isogenic, so same gene, gene background, so that we can exquisitely dissect the effect of this one gene point mutation um, in the same genetic background and not worry about complicating factors of having all these different genetic backgrounds. And obviously it goes up exponentially when you start adding in genetic backgrounds. But ultimately, that's like where the field has to go, is we've got to first figure out the methods in a single genetic background and then move them forward into multiple um, cell lines. So in addition to this, you know, you're like now expanding this like bigger collaboration between labs, but you're also the director of the UC Santa Barbara Institute for Bioengineering. Um, so what's that like to balance with your kind of the grants that you have and the, and the work that your lab is doing? Um, compared to being the director of this of this big uh, center, uh, it's not that big. So the the center is actually an academic unit, really, and it its function. Um, when I got there, its function was primarily to support a graduate emphasis, which is extracurricular training um, in bioengineering for students and other degree programs. So it has thirteen affiliated PhD programs. So it's to offer a 
a rather um, focused curriculum around bioengineering and biotechnology, uh, along with supporting seminar series for these students in, again, you know, fields adjacent to to bioengineering. Um, I moved to UCSB to help that center and and the campus to pivot that into offering a full-fledged biological engineering degree. So we just got that approved by the UC system and the PhD in biological engineering. Um, Admissions open now, applications are open now, and hopefully the first cohort will show up on campus next fall. Um, It it builds off of the it builds off of the emphasis that we've been doing for a while, and you know, despite the fact that you could not get a degree in bioengineering, people have been getting PhDs doing research in bioengineering for a long time. Um, we have plenty of faculty there doing that type of work. Um, it's just a question of like what what curricular track did you come through to do that type of PhD? So now people can come through a curricular track and get a degree that says biological engineering um, at the end of that program. And we also uh, just just started this fall uh, the first two cohorts of two training grants one from the NSF on the data-driven biology, so the intersection of using data science methods and quantitative image analysis methods for biological data sets, um, and another one in quantitative mechanobiology from the NIH, a T32, which is really you know what we were talking about earlier, which is how do we quantitatively link genotype to phenotype, mechanosignaling, um, and that, that one um, in particular has got Mechanobiology broadly interpreted. So the the faculty mentors affiliated with that with that T32 are from a, a, a large range of departments, but again use model systems from stem cells to eye cells to um, heart cells to Drosophila, C. elegans, um, mice, you name it, right? All kinds of things, even biosensors and and the like. So uh, really, that that is kind of a collection. A, at the moment, it's it's been a loose collection of faculty, you know, united around the theme of bioengineering and this this smaller curriculum. And going forward, you know, many of us are now transferring our um, academic appointments into this new unit. So it will be like you know, the program. Uh, in short time, it will be a department. And then the goal is, once we have all all of those things set up in a few more years, um, we will hopefully be um, have a curriculum developed for undergraduate bioengineering program. But I think that that will probably emerge as an upper division major and uh, elective tracks within our existing programs for now. So my primary department now is mechanical engineering, and we just approved on our campus a change to a track system where students elect into a specialization in their junior and senior year. And one of those tracks is uh, bioengineering and systems biology. So that's in partnership with, um, with what our efforts are in biological engineering. So let's switch gears a bit. I think one of the most fascinating things about you from my perspective is that you're a veteran. Um, so, you know, how did your military career start? How did that come about? Um, I did ROTC. Um, I was actually just talking with one of your colleagues whose son is trying to decide between going to the Naval Academy or something else. Um, so I did look at going to the Naval Academy or one of the other service academies uh, for, for school. And yeah, I think when you're in high school, you don't really know what the implications are. For me, I think the right choice was to have done ROTC. Um, so you get that military training alongside your undergraduate degree and the, and the ROTC pays your tuition um, for the school, pays your books. Um, you know, you, you still have to come up with some some funding for your own living expenses and housing and things, but it's a pretty good way to, to pay for school. Um, and I figured I would get some good training. And at the time, you know, I I thought maybe I would want to be a pilot or something like that, you know. Um, in the end, I, I 
did not opt for the pilot track. I decided to go to uh, the nuclear headquarters where you use your engineering degree and you you look at engineering projects related to the nuclear navy. Um, and then I had the opportunity just through a just the center, you know, just just synergistic that they needed instructors at the Naval Academy. And uh, I had taken a leave to get a master's before my commission um, because they had too many officers in the Navy when I was graduating. So we had, the, we had the option to delay. So I got a master's and then they had not enough officers who had masters a few years later and they needed instructors at the Naval Academy because they were sending all these people um, to, I forget which desert initiative it was, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. So I got to teach the Naval Academy and that's where I decided that I really liked this, you know, if you'd asked me when I finished undergraduate, I would have said I definitely was not going to go become a professor. But uh, so I took a more circuitous path, did a master's, went in the Navy, ended up liking teaching, thought I would get a PhD so I could go back as a civilian professor at the Naval Academy and ended up liking the research too much. So decided to, you know, try working at a, a, a research university as a professor first and ended up, you know, sticking with that track. So is teaching something you still enjoy a lot, I guess, from that. Assumption. I do, um, and, and especially mentoring, So, which is, you know, in, at least in the UC system is is a, a form, of, you know, form of teaching. Um, but I especially enjoy working with, with graduate students. And uh, I was telling the students that I met today that I'm one of those weird professors who actually really enjoys grant writing. Um, not the stuff outside the science part of the grant, but I enjoy writing the science part of the grant and especially... Um, sharing that process with whether it's good collaborators who also enjoy that process and really thinking through like filling the whiteboard over and over again with like, Oh, we could do this. Oh, we could do that. What about this? And it, it is a bit like writing science fiction of the what if, and what if we could, um, but also sharing that process with my students, right. To really help them get involved in the process of deciding like, what are the projects that they're going to be involved in? Right. So they feel like they had a voice in designing the the projects that are going to be funding for the next three years, you know, of their, of their research. So, um, I, I like that. I like that aspect of it. And, um, I, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed that part of my PhD doing the research and trying to think about what are the experiments and what are we going to learn and why are we learning it? Yeah. And I, I noticed in your, in your seminar this morning that, you know, you often are including the students that are working on the project and clearly, um, had an interest in, in training and mentoring. Um, it's something that, that you're clearly thinking about a lot. So, what sort of qualities do you look for in your trainees when they come to the lab? Uh, you know, they don't necessarily need to know exactly what they want to do, but they generally, and they don't have to have the perfect engineering background or the perfect biology background, right? You learn what you need to know, but you need to be passionate about it and passionate about why you need to know it and why you want to know it. So I, I think it's really um, an ability to collaborate and communicate is probably the the key thing and we've sort of evolved to a culture where i ask after people rotate in the lab i ask all the current lab members what do they think of this person um sharing sharing the office in the lab with them for the next several years you know exactly <laughs> yeah so and my students are probably you know have 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 said no to more people than i might have said no to and so okay i have to respect that right you're and so I, and, and the number one thing we, we have a kind of living document of, of how our lab works and lab expectations and things like that. And, um, and one of the things is that we, and I learned this from your colleague, Kent Leach, right? They revise theirs every year. We've had it and we revise once in a while and, and it's time for us to revise ours again. Um, and 
one of the things that they wanted to flip the order most recently, especially in the pandemic, but it was really about like the things that the, you know, how you treat each, how we treat each other, right. Rose to like one of the things that is most important. And so really honoring and respecting people's contributions and time and, um, you know, not just demanding training from people, but, uh, you know, being reciprocating, right. You knowing that you're going to pay things forward. And so, um, I, I think that, that that has emerged as as something that um, obviously the personality of, of our labs changes over time, but I I really like that our lab is very community minded right now. So along those lines, what's your take on sort of the work life balance for for graduate students or even for yourself? UCSB is a great place to have work life balance, and we actually, especially during the pandemic, we started um, we started something we call Community Minute, and I I joined a lot of online trainings and online Slack and online uh, Zoom calls in the BME community in particular, where people were trying to figure out, like, there was a lot going on during the pandemic. It wasn't just the pandemic. There was, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, right? And there was just a lot um, that really, a lot of inequities in this country that came to light. And so, you know, just, and it's a lot to process, especially if you're, uh, you're a student stuck home, right, in this in this lockdown that we were in at, at a time a lot of this was happening. And so, we just started reading papers or I'd send out a paper that was kind of current topic and we would discuss it and we call it community minute. So the minute really only refers to the fact that whatever it is we're going to talk about that day, the presenter is supposed to tell us in one minute why they picked that topic. Um, and then we talk about it and some days that's 10 minutes and some days that's 20 minutes of our lab meeting. But we do that at the beginning of every lab meeting now. And it's whether it's wellness and what people are doing for wellness. So in the pandemic, we we talked about um, having everyone share something they did to de-stress. Um, and I think it was really nice, especially for our undergrads. We had a lot of undergrads who were doing, all of our undergrads who had hoped to spend that summer doing uh, experimental research pivoted to like, you're a biologist and we're going to teach you MATLAB or Python and you're <laughs> we're going to give you stacks of data and you're going to learn how to do this stuff. And they did. Um, but then they weren't used to being trapped behind a computer to do their quote research, you know, and but in the end, they, they all really thrived and liked it. But um, And they all like went and learned when Python bootstrapped it and they helped each other. It was, it was really great, but it was like really reminding people that they needed to like stand up, get outside. And, you know, of course, we all have to try to be better as faculty too to practice what we preach. But um, even at Stanford, you know, uh, we were in a great location for going biking. So we used to have a lot of biking meetings. Be like, you know, for, if students like to bike, uh, I'd be like, great, let's go talk. And in fact, you know, I had a lot of triathletes in my lab. So I'd be like, you're meeting. I'm listening. <laughs> Can't talk. So, yeah, just, you know, whatever it is, you know, I, I do where I can, especially pre-pandemic, right? It was easier. And hopefully we're trying to get back into the, some of that type of thing. But like go for a walking meeting or go for a coffee meeting or um, whatever it is. But I, I think that it is um, important. And our, our lab has fully adopted this. You know, people come... Uh, well-prepared people keep an eye out for what it is they want to discuss for community minute, whatever article they've read that caught their eye. And so it's, you know, whatever it is, again, it's like anti-racism, well-being, mental health, um, how to, how to make time for writing, but, but people talk about what it is that's kind of weighing them down at the time. And um, usually people appreciate like strategies. Uh, that's great. I'm totally going to implement that. I'm stealing that. Idea. I, I stole it from someone else. So you should totally <laughs> steal from me. That's great. Um, okay. So where could people find you if they want to connect further? Uh, down at UC Santa Barbara, where we do science by the sea. <laughs> I'd love to come. 
Um, okay, so I, I finished these um, with one question that may or may not be science related. So what's the last great thing that you watched or read? Ooh, well, you know, to this topic of uh, anti-racism that's going on in the country, one of the books that was recommended through uh, BME Slack channel um, was Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And it was written 20 years ago, and it was updated um, in 2018. So a lot going on in 2018, but pre-pandemic. But it's just, it's amazing how much hadn't changed in 20 years from the time this author wrote that. But I, I think it was, it was real. And I, and I, there was a lot that I read and for a lot of reasons I won't get into, um, but basically about trying to build a new program, a new faculty, and try to do that in the most diverse and equitable way going forward for UC Santa Barbara. So I read a lot recommended by my colleague who directs the Center for Black Studies Research, Sharon Tedegaw, and I can give you her long reading list as well. Many good books on there. Um, but this one really struck me because she explicitly talks about how important it is that we have conversations about race and how to have them. Um, and so I think that that's something that that is is not been socialized in our country enough. And certainly in my my history and background, uh, it, it felt like a topic that was taboo. And I think it was really it was really interesting because she does talk about sort of some key historical features, but also. Uh, really talks from the social science perspective about how important it is to have the dialogue. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'll get that list from you and put it below the podcast. I'm sure a lot <laughs> of people would love to check that out. Um, yeah, so Beth, thanks so much for, for joining us. And it was great to have you in person here at UC Davis. All right, thanks, Randy. It was a fun visit.